Hello, and welcome back to our latest installment of Eye for an Eye. We are your hosts, Julia, Lisa, and Matt, and we are here to determine whether the punishment, or lack thereof, fits the crime. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to our famous, soon to be famous, not already, Eye for an iPod. I'm your host, Matt. I'm here with my lovely co-hostesses. Ladies, tell them what's good. Hi. Hello. And we have a very special guest for us tonight. I recently took a trip to lovely New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana, and did amazing tour while I was there. And while I was there, met the really cool tour guide. Just tell him hello, Maddie. Hello, how's it going? Oh, great, thank you. Maddie gave an amazing tour. Showed us some really cool spots in New Orleans, some really cool bars, really cool haunts. And I don't mean that as a pun or unintentional. Honestly, the, the coolest thing, I think I went back on the way home, I will say, and tell me if I pronounced this wrong, but Madame Lollerie. Matt, yeah, the Lollerie Mansion. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That was, for me, the coolest thing because I, I actually don't think I told you this, Maddie, but we went back later and somehow talked our way in. We got to see the inside of it there from the balcony from where the girl jumped. Wait, are you joking? No, I'm not joking. Yeah, wait, you I'm went? They were. There. Wait, that's insane. They they were having a party lot that night. That. Yeah, yeah. The guys who were staying there were actually really cool. They were our age, and we started talking to these girls. And they started chatting up with these guys, and we got ourselves invited in. Wait, what? All right, I know it was, it was crazy, and I and literally. For those of you that are fans of the uh, AHS Coven, they filmed it right outside of there. That's where I knew it from just having seen it before. I was like, this looks familiar. That is but, the best season of the show. Oh, that's my head down. But it was just such a cool night. And I love New Orleans. If you haven't been, book a trip, everybody. But Maddie told us another really amazing story on the tour that I said. I, I said, I looked at Zach, Jules' husband, and I was the whole time, I was like, dude, this is like, perfect like we have to we have to talk about this matt wait real quick you would schmooze yourself into some sort of man yeah i'm actually shocked because i've literally never heard of anyone going inside of there that's honestly pretty cool i was the first person to talk their way in it it was pretty awesome yeah our buddy dave schmoozed these guys he told them we were with these girls and we come over and they got us and they invited us in it was pretty awesome Definitely one of the coolest things I've ever done or talked my way into, I should say. Did you take pictures? I did. I did. I have a couple of pretty wild shots from that balcony. It was crazy. And then the girls we were with actually went upstairs. We chilled downstairs. We were talking to these guys. We looked around and we were like, oh, okay. Well, we hung out for a little bit and then they came back downstairs and had pictures of the attic, which to me was a mind fuck because that's where, if I believe it, I recall you told us that's where she kept her victims, right? Imprisoned them in the attic or the third floor, whatever it was. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So the story goes, yes, yeah, the third floor. Wait, Maddie, before we get into it, how did you become a like, ghost tour guide? Or I don't know what the official title is. You can correct me, but how did you get into that? And what made you decide to do that? Yeah. Well, 
honestly, I moved to New Orleans during the pandemic. And truth be told, I was honestly just looking for a job. And there were all these signs, especially last summer, everyone was coming back to New Orleans. Everyone was vaxxed and waxed. There were all these signs hiring for tour guides. I was working remotely still from my DC job and just really wanted to find anything. I started, I was like, I'll give it a try. And then I really liked it. I kept going with it. But yeah, I used to work with international students and I was used to giving groups of people information and all this stuff. But when I just love the history of New Orleans too and all the stories and everything just started and kept going with it. Wait, I love that though. I oh, love that it became passion where it was really needed a job and now it's yeah, like really organic too. There's a sign hanging they needed tour guide. I figured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I do this. I work in real estate. So I have two things going on. And when we first met Maddie, I was I was super interested in everything that was going on in the tour. We went to uh Jean Lafitte's blacksmith shop, which was really cool. I thought, like I said, we went to Madame Lola Reeves mansion. And then there was a more recent that you told that I was super fascinated by. And Lisa, of course, knew all about it before I mentioned it. I was like, no, I don't think it's the same case. Lisa's, it's the same case. Yeah. Guys, there's not, there is very few cases that I haven't at least heard of. Like, I've yeah. not dug into all of them, but. This was one of the ones that I got caught up in a big story. about. It's fascinating. It's terrifying, quite frankly. But Maddie tells it. Well, I honestly was like, I was sitting there looking at Zach and I'm going, bro, we have to. I think I went up to him right after. I was like, bro, we have to have her on the podcast. This is fucking crazy. That was like such a good story and, and such a crazy, perfect story for what we talk about. I think it would be great if Maddie would tell the story. I, I said from jump, I think that would be it's much better told by somebody that knows it so well. Of course, we'll all, as we always do, interject our fanfare and whatever else we got. Maddie, if you want to dive in, please. Sure, sure. It's funny because I usually open up the story by asking if anyone is into murder podcasts. And I think you were like, oh, yeah, I have one. And I was like, okay, sure, drunk person, whatever. Uh-huh. But then here I am. Yeah, right. Everybody in our group looks at me, and I was pretty drunk, I have to say. Yeah, we were pretty hammered at that point. But everybody in our group, as you said that, looked at me and was like, dude. And I was like, I know, this is great. It's perfect timing. So, yes. And I will say, we've had people say that they listen to our show now that we're in this group with you guys. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. Like, I'm telling you, word of mouth is the craziest way that... In the best way we've gotten such traction, you can see it spike up. And that happened after he came home from New Orleans and someone came and joined our Facebook group and on our Facebook group to join it, we ask a few questions just to see where you came from, what you're interested in, see if we can cover cases that people want to hear about. And the lady was like, yeah, I'm here for <laughs> the ghost tour in New Orleans. I'm like, what? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I've no, I've told people about your podcast too since then. I listened to a few of y'all's episodes, the the one about the Duggars. Not to go too much on a tangent, but my mom also told my mom, we're getting the whole the whole gang involved. Yes. You know. Okay, just to give a general overview, our story surrounds a couple that was living in the French Quarter in New Orleans in the early two thousands, around two thousand four, two thousand five. Their names were Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. They were both servers, bartenders throughout the French Quarter. New Orleans is a really, really big service industry town. A lot of people make money their entire careers doing that kind of thing. 
they were just really well known throughout the French Quarter, really fun people. Zach had this really fun, outgoing personality. He was known to be able to make anyone smile. Addie was this free spirit, artist, poet, dancer. They started dating in 2005 in spring or summer, a few months before Hurricane Katrina came through. They decided to stay in the French Quarter to ride out the storm during Hurricane Katrina, which sounds weird in hindsight, but at the time it wasn't really that weird of a decision for a few reasons. I mentioned this usually on the tour that in the French Quarter, you're at some of the highest ground in the whole city. New Orleans as a city is sinking. It's mostly below sea level. The French Quarter and a couple other areas were built on some of the highest ground in the whole city. It doesn't really flood there. The water might rise a little bit, but it all clears up pretty quickly. No one knew that Hurricane Katrina was going to be as bad as it was until the very last second. The mayor of New Orleans didn't put out the mandatory evacuation until the night before it came through. When it hit the city of New Orleans, relatively, and I say relatively because it was still a bad storm, but it relatively wasn't as bad as some others. It was a Category 3 storm when it hit the city of New Orleans, whereas in comparison, Hurricane Ida that happened last summer was Category 4 when it hit the city. The reason that Hurricane Katrina was devastating to the city was that the levees blew out and 80% of the city flooded. Zach and Addie, along with a lot of other people, decided to ignore the mandatory evacuation, stay through the storm in the French Quarter. During the storm, they were pretty much fine, right? No major damage to where they were, although there was lots of debris and everything in the street. But once the storm passed, you really couldn't go in or out. 80% of the city flooded. You couldn't go in or out of the French Quarter, and you also just couldn't go in or out of the city. They stayed during Hurricane Katrina, and they pretty much embraced this post-Katrina survivalist era where no one was going in or out. There was no electricity. There was no food or alcohol coming in. And then on top of that, they were bartenders. They had access to this bar called Hogs Bar where they ordered liquor. And they ran this 24-hour party that they were having at Addie's apartment on Gov Nickel Street. And they just invited people over for dinner parties. They would cook beans, just drink the whole time and have this 24-hour party that was going that was going on outside of Addie's apartment. As I was reading that, and I'm thinking about post-Katrina survivalism, no utilities, everything being pretty much primal. What you have in your house if you're not flooded and what you can scavenge is what you're living off of. If somebody calls you and says, hey, we have hot food and booze at this place for a few weeks, I imagine it must have been honestly what early quarantine felt like for a little bit, where you can't really see too many people. There aren't too many people around at that point, but it's that isolation sets in and a lot of weird thoughts start creeping into your head. I know for me, it did during that. No, absolutely. You know what I was thinking of when my great aunt lives in New Orleans half of the year and she has my entire life for a zillion years maybe 50-something years, 60-something years. And when Katrina happened, she actually came to live with my family for a little bit in Pittsburgh. And I was thinking, because you were saying that there was this subset of people, it almost sounded like chose to stay. Or did you, th did you, or were you saying that, was that a conscious decision or did they just genuinely have nowhere else to go? Or maybe a mix of both? I think a combination of both. I think specifically for Zach and Addie, at first, they maybe didn't really have anywhere else to go that was safe or that wouldn't have cost a lot of money. 
once the storm passed, a lot of people even still evacuated if they could after that. Even some of Zach and Addie's friends left the French Quarter. And there's this really great book called Shake the Devil Off by Ethan Brown, where I got a lot of specific information from. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, it was definitely a conscious choice once the storm passed, because I think they both just had this free-spirited side of them that was like, no, we want to be these holdouts and we want to stay in New Orleans and screw everyone that's leaving the city and all this stuff. And I think exactly like you said, Matt, it was just this Zach and Addie were at the center of all the things that were going on, where they were just having this nonstop barbecue party. They were both very outgoing people that lots of people knew. That just was a part of the draw as well, I think, for people. Definitely a lot of holdouts. The awesome part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except I can only imagine the heat in late August. It, and same with Ida, too. I evacuated, but I can only imagine what the heat was like. There were a couple bars, too, apparently, that were open 24 hours. They actually got national news attention for this whole thing, being these holdouts that stayed in the French Quarter. The New York Times has this piece that you can still find online that features them where they took all these famous pictures of them outside of their apartment. It was just, all it was was a story about these French Quarter holdouts having this giant party this whole time. And then things change about a year later. Fast forward to October of 2006. Someone who is a guest at the Omni Royal Hotel in New Orleans calls 911 and says, hey, there's a dead body on the rooftop of the parking lot of the hotel. And just to give a visual of where we're talking about, the Omni Royal Hotel, if you're walking from Jackson Square down Charter Street to the hotel, there's all these buildings that are boutiques and restaurants and bars and stuff that are one or two stories max. I loved in the French Quarter. I just wanted to point out when you were talking about it down there, I, I loved how the style of buildings was so original still. Everything looks the same as I'm sure it did probably when it was all built because everything is well preserved, but they've still built this city as within what exists already. I think it's so cool. And when you were telling the story, I believe we were standing across the street from the Omni Royal, correct? Yeah, we were right across the street in a parking lot where we probably shouldn't stand in all honesty, but it's really easy to see the hotel from there and see everything. <laughs> uh, that's what I love about the French Quarter, too, not to get into real estate, but like huge on historic preservation, especially in the French Quarter, down to the color. And even on the inside, on the interior, there's all these rules, too. Uh, I love that the French Quarter still feels like you're in the 1800s or whatever. For those who haven't been or don't know exactly what I'm talking about, Bound New Orleans Hotel, it's this giant gray brick of a building that looms over most of the other buildings that are like one or two stories and look very classic French Quarter. And then on the side where we were standing of the hotel in that parking lot, that side, the wall, there's no windows, there's no lights. It's just a just straight wall. And then right next to it, way down below it is where the parking lot is. You have this giant brick of a building. At the top, there's a pool and a bar area and a few little railings. And then way down below it is the rooftop of the parking lot. That's where they said that they saw the dead body. It was way down below on the rooftop of the parking lot. The police get there and they check out the body. It's this young man. On him, they find military tags that say the name Zach Bowen. And then they find a note that on the outside says, for police only. 
And on the inside of the note, when they open it up, it says these exact words. This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one that I took. If you send a patrol to 826 Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with the full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession from myself. The keys in my right pocket are for the gates. Call Leo Watermeyer to let you in, Zach Bowen. Can you imagine being the person to find that? I would be freaking the fuck out as I'm reading. What the hell is this? Even if this is not an accident part, I'd be like, what? And then all of a sudden it talks about your chopped up girlfriend's body? Hello? What? Seriously, I mean, it's bad enough to see that this guy just jumped off the roof and his dead body is laying there. And then it's, whoa, okay, whole other door in the story to go down. We got a whole other story. Yeah, exactly. The note said something on the outside, like, for police only, right? Written on yeah. The outside, and then it was written. Oh, my God. Yeah. I want to come back to this, but they found out he, this guy, Zach, they'd done a bunch of cocaine and ran up a pretty big bar tab on the rooftop bar of the hotel and then jumped off the roof to take his own life. The police go to the apartment up on Rampart Street, pretty much almost the opposite end of the French Quarter from where this hotel is. And the first thing that they notice is that the air conditioning is all the way up. It's very cool in the apartment. You don't need to have it running that high. It's not like the middle of summer or anything. And then they find all these messages written on the wall around the walls of the apartment in black spray paint. It says stuff like, please call my wife. I love her. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven and please stop me. Help the paint. They go to look in the stove and the oven and they find on the front burner of the stove, they find a head, a human head that appeared to have been cooked. And in the book that I was talking about earlier, he says that you can see skin and teeth floating in water or some sort of liquid. And then on the back burner, they find a similar situation, but they find hands and feet that had been cut up and cooking as well. They look in the stove and they find arms and legs cut up that had been burned to a crisp. In the refrigerator, they find it wrapped up in a plastic bag. On top of that, Zach alluded to in his note, they also find Addie's journal. And in it, Zach had written about seven pages detailing how he killed Addie and all the events surrounding the murder and suicide. When they do an autopsy on Addie, it turns out she had died by strangulation. After that, Zach had cut up her body and cooked the body parts. He had strangled her and then cut up her body and then cooked her body parts. I don't know if he detailed this in the seven-page note. I'm reading excerpts from it from Shake the Devil Off by Ethan Brown. I would love to read the whole thing beginning to end the seven pages. But Ethan Brown alludes to the fact that he did this because there were other experiences that in his life from things that happened before that may have made him think to cook her body to get rid of the smell and that's how he was going to dispose of it and everything. That's the initial part of how everything happened. This is a very daunting thing to a lot of people because of the way that people thought of Zach and Ad. People thought of them as this very cute couple and they were like in love and this seemed like a 180. They both have a history. I'm going to go a little into their backstory so we can lead up to what happened. 
I think it makes sense to start when Zach came to New Orleans. Zach was originally born in California, and he came to New Orleans with his dad on a cross-country road trip after his parents had been divorced and he dropped out of high school. And their last stop on the trip was New Orleans. He loved it so much, he figured he would stay there. He wasn't going to school anymore. He got a job when, when he was 18 still, working on Bourbon Street, serving drinks from like to-go window. Because the beauty of New Orleans is you can walk around with a drink in your hand and walk in the streets and everything. He was one of those people just in a random window serving to-go cups. And while he was doing that, he met this girl who was in New Orleans for a couple of days. They had a little fling and then eventually one thing led to another. She ends up moving to New Orleans. They get married and he has two kids. And at this time, he's still 19 or 20. He's very, very young. Needless to say, they, they struggled with money for a little while, especially with having the two kids. He was bartending. She was stripping to make money. They eventually decide after a long series of events, they decide that Zach is going to join the military to get access to the long-term benefits to be able to support his kids. This was around the year 2000. He gets sent to Germany. He's in the military a while. He tries to bring her over. And then 9-11 happens, and Zach's company is one of the first to be sent to Iraq, which was not what he was expecting. He didn't expect to join the military to go to war or anything. During his time in the military, he experienced major trauma, just the general day-to-day -day fear of being attacked or dying. A couple things happened to him while he was there. He had befriended this little Iraqi boy whose family owned a shop near where he was stationed. And this little boy would bring him candy or other things from the store. And Zach would teach him English. And they had this little friendship and everything. One random day, his family's shop was bombed by insurgents. Him and his entire family died. A few other close friends of him died in several attacks in Iraq. And according to him, that could have easily been him. That is probably a story that many U.S. soldiers could tell from any foreign war, really, but particularly the war in Iraq. And I think a lot of people probably came back more scarred than even we realize now. And shame, honestly. I think that definitely weighs in on this, and I'm glad that we made note of that because the things that people see in war, I don't wish on anybody, honestly. Right, absolutely. No, and... and Ethan Brown mentions this in the book, but a few years after Adi's murder, Zach was featured again in the New York Times, along with a lot of other soldiers who had committed murder post-war and everything. His picture was really big on the front page and everything, and there were just a lot of other similar stories. By the time he came back to New Orleans, he had definitely seen a lot of shit. Keep in mind, he's a 19, 20-year-old kid who went straight from high school to all these adult responsibilities, and now he's literally in the middle of a war. On top of that, he wasn't really in support of the war at all. He didn't even want to be there. He was literally just there to try to get those benefits for his family. Really kind of, you know, where some other people joined the army to fight in Iraq or because they believed in what was happening, he definitely did not. Between all of these things and the fact that he didn't even support the war in Iraq in the first place, Zach purposely failed several fitness tests in 2004. Mind you, I don't know anything about the military. I'll just say that right now. But he was sent home with what is called a general discharge under honorable circumstances. It wasn't a dishonorable discharge or anything like that, but it wasn't as, from what Ethan Brown describes in the book, it wasn't an honorable discharge either. It was ambiguous, I guess. Even though he had won all these medals and done all this other good stuff, 
Zach goes home under a general discharge under honorable circumstances. And at that time, his wife was in Germany, la la la. She finds out she's pissed. He comes home. He's left. He's failed these fitness tests. She's pissed. And she says, bye, I'm leaving you. I'm going back to New Orleans. And he eventually follows. He comes back to New Orleans and they're not together, but they never actually get divorced. After he gets back to New Orleans, he's not working for the military anymore. And he has to get a job bartending again. He ends up working at this bar called Hogs Bar, which sadly is not there anymore. He meets this girl named Addie, who's working at the bar. Addie has this really feisty personality, and she's just a shit talker, and was just really not impressed with Zach, even though he was known as this very charming person who could make anyone smile. Addie, in comparison, was known to start fights at the bar and just get really drunk and lash out at people. She would even yell at people pre-Uber Eats and everything especially in the French Quarter where maybe people get around by foot grocery delivery services via bike were a big thing. And so she would deliver groceries on her bike and she would yell at people who didn't tip her. Or if they tipped her a dollar, she'd just chew them out on the street. She also had this side that was softer and she was this free spirit who loved to sew and write and dance. She came to New Orleans during Mardi Gras in 2002 and stayed here for a few weeks during the carnival season and then later decided to move here. She loved the whole bohemian feel of the French Quarter. Addie had a backstory, too. Addie had a history of abuse, which caused her to just really feel distrust in relationships. She was sexually abused as a child. I don't know any more details than that. But apparently, on top of that, in the post-Katrina survivalist no man's land, there was one night where she and Zach were doing a supply loot at this grocery store called Robert's. And Zach waited outside, and she goes alone into this dark, semi-abandoned grocery store to get food or whatever else they wanted to get. And this guy just grabs her and attempts to rape her. And then she gets out, and just another huge trauma right there. She downplayed it and tried to convince herself it was fine, but then there were random times where she would randomly cry or just like get upset about it and try to push it down. She would get really angry and lash out at people, especially when she was drunk. And she would even do this to Zach. She would throw slurs at people. She would use the F word for gay. Zach and Addie get together in the spring or summer of 2005 before Hurricane Katrina happened. At first, it was this whirlwind romance. Everyone thought that they were so cute and so in love and they had this perfect relationship. This is leading up to Hurricane Katrina, where during the survivalist time of Hurricane Katrina that they were living in, they lived in this fantasy land between the two of them where they didn't really have to deal with the everyday realities of real life. Going to work every day and paying your bills. Zach had a lot of everyday life realities, taking care of two kids, untreated PTSD and everything. He had a lot facing him when he wasn't in this fantasy land of post-Katrina reality. And needless to say, Zach and Addie had a really hard time adjusting back to everyday life when people started coming back to New Orleans and when the city started opening up, especially because in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, the National Guard was called in for a long time. And there was a huge military presence all around the French Quarter on the street. There were hundreds of soldiers. Zach didn't do well with all that stuff happening on the street and all the military presence and everything. It was just a really hard time adjusting back to everyday life. And then months and years that followed Hurricane Katrina, 
Zach and Addie continued on with this very toxic relationship, especially when they would drink and they would both do coke heavily. It's a wicked combination, right? These things always tend to be where she has his trauma, she has her trauma. You combine the two of them in what is absolute whirlwind of a shit firestorm in a flooded post-apocalyptic Katrina environment in New Orleans. And then you mix in all of, if you ask me, all of the evils and all the crazy other things that I'm sure went on down there during that time and all the things that people had to do to survive, plus the history of all the crazy shit that's gone on in that city already. It just, to me, sounds like something was brewing, something wild was brewing. And of course, was. I get it. I see why this boiled down to what eventually did happen. Right. And to Maddie's earlier point, they were almost in the honeymoon phase, right? Where yes, exactly. they were just, you know, doing whatever presented itself that day versus dealing with actual day-to-day -day reality. And then adding on top of that, I think it's interesting the point you made about the National Guard being very, very heavily present in the city, I'm sure was really triggering. You have to think this didn't happen in Pittsburgh. This happened in New Orleans, where that's almost already the lifestyle. It already feels like you're in an adult amusement park, Europe in the Midwest. Maybe that, that added to it, right? Yeah, but you got to think, at least they, they didn't even get water to the Superdome. There were 30,000 people in the Superdome. FEMA didn't get water to the Superdome for what, four days after the levees broke? Four yeah. fucking days. That's literally what that organization is designed to do is when there's a natural disaster to pull up with everything you could possibly need. It took them four days. Think about what the French Quarter probably looked like. I can personally say I was there last month. It was pretty wrecked when I was there. And we are 17 years post Katrina. Okay. It had to be fucked up, man. It had to be fucked up, man. I'm just, oh, man. Yeah, since you brought up the Superdome, I think it's interesting. It's pre-smartphone, but people went on the internet very frequently all the time. But there was no cell service or electricity. A lot of people in the French Quarter that were holdouts had no idea all the devastation that had even happened around the city. They especially didn't know that there were all these people trapped in the Superdome and that New Orleans had undergone this enormous just devastation in all these other parts as well. Because again, the French Quarter, it was messed up, but in terms of the... The buildings and everything, those are all pretty much intact. They're not flooding up to the second floor. Already you're in this place where, especially in the French Quarter, you have bars that are open 24 hours. And there's very much like a bar culture where you just pop in and get a drink or people that are always there. It was just an extreme of that in the wake of this. And then on top of that, yeah, Zach and Addie were doing all this coke. And there was someone that they had met around that same time that dealt them coke that they loaned money to at one point and then he just kept giving them all this free coke after that and it was actually a guy that had served in iraq as well but not with zach and i think even at one point zach had brought up all the terrible stuff that had happened to him to this guy that was dealing them coke who all served in iraq and the guy whose name was squirrel said i was in like a hospital literally sewing people together what were you doing? It probably wasn't that bad for you. I'm sure that only added to Zach's stress or feeling like he had to push things down. All of this toxic, volatile relationship is ongoing in the year after Hurricane Katrina. 
Zach and Eddie are fighting and they would just break up, get back together. At one point it was like they were breaking up every 18 hours and then getting back together. It was less than a 24 hour thing. We've all been there, but not quite that bad. It was definitely an extreme, I'd say. I would just like to say that I have absolutely been there, but not been that far down the line, I don't think. But been to a point of stress where I'm like, oh, fuck. But not to that. Not to that extent. I will. Definitely an extreme, to say the least. This whole time, Addie had been living out of this apartment on Governor Nichols, which is actually a couple, few blocks up from the Lollery Mansion. And Zach had been in and out. And because, remember, he still had this technically wife and two kids that lived on the other side of New Orleans who... He would see from time to time or they would come over to Addie's apartment. But Zach would just be living between places. He didn't officially live at Addie's apartment, although he spent a lot of time there. Eventually, in October of 2006, Zach and Addie decide to rent an apartment together. Really what happened was that Addie was apparently threatened with eviction from her apartment on Gov Nichols. Because her toilet stopped working and then her landlord wouldn't fix it. She ended up getting it paid for herself, but then she wouldn't pay her landlord the difference in rent. She was threatened with eviction and she and Zach are on the rocks. I would have done the same thing. You know? Would you let her cut it out of that rent? I would let them, me personally, I wouldn't be pissed if they took care of it. I would probably give them the credit back on their rent, yes. But I would not be able to handle it myself, I would more likely pay one of my friends who's a contractor to do that or a plumber to do that because I am capable of doing these things personally. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Yeah, it sounds like her landlord was honestly just being an asshole. I actually just found the page in the book where it talks about it. And it says landlord tenant law is highly unfavorable to tenants in Louisiana and he would have been successful in getting Addie thrown out of the apartment. That's pretty insane. But either way, Zach and Addie decide to move in together because Addie is afraid she's going to be evicted. Maybe a stretch to say just that they decide to move in together because what happens is Addie wants to move into a new apartment because she's about to get evicted, but she doesn't have enough money yet for the first month's rent and the deposit that it would cost. She gets Zach to be like, hey, let's move in together. Let's start fresh. And I don't want to make it sound like, oh, Addie did all this stuff too that was like bad or whatever. I don't want to make it sound like that's something that caused all this stuff to happen, but it was just part of the events that led up to it. Addie says, let's sign this lease together or let's find an apartment together. But she asks Zach if he can cover the first month's rent and the deposit. And Zach agrees. They bike around on their bike for a few hours and then they find the apartment on Rampart Street. They call the landlord and he lets them just move in without even signing a lease. Pretty much immediately after, Addie goes to the landlord herself and says that she actually wants to sign a lease in her name only. Zach is paid for the apartment and the deposit. And then she takes the apartment in her name. And her excuse is that Zach was cheating on her. Zach gets really mad about all this stuff. He thinks that like Addie is going to kick him off of the lease and he's not really going to have a place to go, or at least that possibility exists. She said he was cheating on her, which was true. In the weeks leading up to this, Zach had actually started a relationship with a guy and was coming into his bisexuality. And when Addie found out, she was just hurling insults at him and totally lashing out at him when he was drunk. 
And so it doesn't really have anything to do with them moving into this apartment, but because they agreed to do it at that point. But she tells the landlord he was cheating on her and that's why he needs to get kicked off. And the landlord is like, well, this is your beef between the two of you. You guys figure it out on your own. This just causes an hours long fight between Zach and Addie on the night of, I believe, October 4th. They're fighting late into the night, getting really upset with each other. And then the next day, Addie doesn't show up for work. This is obviously the night when he murdered her. The journal where he laid out the seven page note details everything that happened after that. He says in the journal that she was trying to kick him out. And what he says to me is very chilling to hear, not to use a word I feel like is overused in true crime podcasts or whatever, but truly it gave me chills when I first read it. Because what he said was she was trying to kick him out and quote, then would not shut the fuck up. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Sorry. Very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. And then he says, after sexually defiling the body a few times, I was posed with the question of how to dispose of the corpse. Why is this still casual? But I know. I know he just writes this all in his journal that he wrote the seven page thing about. He's trying to figure out how to dispose of the corpse. And then what he does is he just he literally falls asleep right next to her body and leaves her there overnight. He says he gets drunk and falls asleep next to her. And then just goes to work the next day at like 6 a.m. Apparently that day, he's not really saying much. It's hard to say because I think of Serial, the podcast, everything in hindsight seems weird or seems different. People say that that day he was just not talking as much. And then eventually people start to ask where Addie is because they were literally just always together. Even seeing them or seeing her not around for like an entire day was very weird to people. And what he told people was that He had broke up with her, and so she peaced out and headed out of town and went back to Durham, North Carolina, where she was from. Meanwhile, this whole time, her body is just laying in their bed. What's crazy is if he hadn't jumped off a roof and admitted all this, I wonder if anybody would have known since she was a drinker. No, absolutely. You would think eventually people start to realize that there's no way to get in contact with her whatsoever. But yeah, it probably would have taken... Even with this time, so there were still two weeks that passed between when she was murdered and when Zach jumped off the roof of the hotel, which in that time, no one questioned anything. No one even thought to. It never got to the point where people were like, oh, something terrible happened to her. That night after he's gone to work all day, he works to slowly and methodically cut up her body. And what he wrote in the note is that he says, I came home, moved the body to the tub got a saw and hacked off her feet, hands, and head, put her head in the oven after giving her an awful haircut, and then put her hands and feet in the water on the range. He apparently kept the light on in the bathroom the whole night, which caught the attention of a neighboring tenant and made him feel really uneasy. It was something that stuck with him. He left her like that. He starts going on this binge where he's partying 24-7, spending all his money, running up a bar tab, and then leaving the bar without paying. And doing a bunch of drugs. And he doesn't do anything else until a few nights later when he then saws off her arms and legs and then puts them in the roasting pans in the oven. Oh my God. It sounds safe to say that this dude was on a pretty... He knew he was checking out. He was on an obvious downward spiral. He was spending all his money. He's doing that dope, walking out on bar tabs, clearly just not giving a fuck about everyday life. 
I can't imagine that he spent the entire night dismembering her in the bathroom and left the light on the entire time. That's the type of thing that somebody noticed. Crazy to think that he even recognized that. I would probably dismiss that as, oh, the guy must be drunk and fell asleep, left the light on. You know, I wouldn't even think twice about that. I wonder if what Maddie was saying, if it's hindsight's 2020, where you hear this all yeah. the time, oh yeah, his light was on all night. Or if it was like, what the fuck is my neighbor doing at 4 a.m. in the bathroom? Why would he be up? Right. That's Our neighbor's front light shines into the house so bright sometimes at night that I feel like I left a light on. Maybe it was something like that where the hindsight of like, you know what, that night I was like, that fucker left his light on. I don't know. But just a very strange detail. No, and it's true, not to go on a whole other tangent, but this is something as well, is that I've never been in that courtyard where the apartment is, but you can very much go in there. There's a tour company that does tours of the apartment, and I have lots of thoughts on that as well, but that you can just go in and walk up and they're like, here's the stove and the oven and the fridge where she was murdered and everything. I know from videos and pictures that like, the bathroom light, I think, is right in the courtyards. If you're at one of the apartments across the courtyard, that's the window that you would see with the light on. It's hard to know. Is he just saying that because he knows everything that happened because of that? Or was he really? Someone else said that he thought Zach was acting really weird. And when Addie was gone, he thought, oh, did he murder her and everything? But again, hard to know if that's like, looking back. To go off of what you were saying, Matt, like... He writes it in the journal as well that he had this moment in the middle of when he was cutting up her body where he says he scared himself because he was cutting up this woman who he supposedly loved. But he he scared himself not because he was doing that, but because he didn't feel any remorse. And then what he says is, quote, I decided to quit my job and spend the $1,500 in cash I had being happy and kill myself. He's down and out. He's just like spending all his money and going to bars and everything. He goes on this bender for like almost two weeks. Or I guess, you know, after the point when he's cut up her body, it's another week that he is spending all this cash. He's going to strip clubs. He's running up bar tabs. He's inviting his friends out who have no idea that all of this stuff has happened. At some point during this time, he apparently gives himself 28 cigarette burns all over his body to mark the 28 years of his life. One of the last things he reportedly did was to spray paint his wife, whose name was Lana, his wife's phone number above the bathtub in the apartment to leave for police. The final thing that happens is that on October 17th, he stopped by his friend Squirrel's apartment, the one that kept giving him all this free coke and everything, to see if he could drag him out for one last night, final night of partying. And his friend refuses. He's asleep in bed. I think he's hungover. Zach was going to have this one night out, but because squirrel says he doesn't want to go out that's when zach decides to head to the omni royal hotel i mentioned earlier when he was there i think he spent like several hundred dollars on his bar tab and he was hanging out in the corner and i'll tell you guys i actually went to this bar for the first time yesterday because i was just curious about it i had never been up there i went to the top and there's like a pool area and then there's a bar in the corner and then there, there's these three or four arches that openings from the walls and everything where there are these little railings and apparently he was in the corner by the last railing on the end and he was there hanging out all afternoon and apparently the bar staff were worried that 
since he had run up such a big tab, they thought he was just going to peace out and not pay it because it was so big. And then at 8.30 p.m., that's apparently when he jumped off the roof. That's where the police find him when someone calls 911 and tells them there's a dead body on the rooftop of the parking lot. Wait, so I have a question. When you went to visit the bar, have they yeah. like barriers now that someone just like really jumped off the building no it'd be so easy it doesn't go that high there's nothing blocking you it's very open on that side like you look down and you see the parking lot it's just super creepy and i actually thinking one of my friends was visiting here in the fall with her family and they stayed at the omni Road hotel and when she told me that i was like oh shit do you know the story and I told her everything. And she had told me that earlier that day when they were on the rooftop bar, she had looked down onto the parking lot and thought, oh, shit, I wonder if you, someone could probably die if they fell off of this. It's an, an amazing view. I will say that it is a great spot to sit and have a drink. But yeah, very creepy as well. Very, I don't know, ominous, I guess. But yeah, that's how we come f- full circle in this story. I, I want to say when I was there, I definitely got the opinion that I looked at the building and had an eerie sense about it. You said it's very basic, banal, gray brick. Nothing really to speak of it, but it gives this pallor of just discomfort. I don't know why, but it when I, I might be because you were telling this story for the first time I had heard it. But I was thinking about it at the time. I was like, this seems like a place where somebody would come get absolutely shit-faced and think, you know, life isn't worth it. I just been an awful, heinous crime and jumped off the bus. Why does everyone keep thinking this there? Thinking what? This would be a good place to die. Oh, it was weird, yeah, honestly. Maybe he goes to chill in. It's like, yo, guys, this is, this was the move. Here's the other thing is that that was not Zach's first time at the hotel. I know my friend told me this, that he apparently used to take his kids to the pool at the rooftop of the Omni Hotel. It's a spot he had definitely been to before. And yeah, like, like Matt was saying, especially on the side where the back part of it next to where the parking lot is, there's like no windows at all. So it's just this very weird like, giant gray square building. And there's no windows and no lights. And then you just see where the railing is up by the bar. And then way down below is the parking lot. It's just like, this giant gray square with this big height i think that makes it creepier that he had been there before maybe he yeah, just... liked his spot right what an awful way to end your life that's not that's not a walk in the park type of end that's uh you got minutes when you're seconds when you're falling to think did i do the right thing? although he he did make a lot of mistakes here <laughs> he chopped the body up not to go down the whole really graphic thing but you probably don't die right away. How tall was the building? From the pool and the bar are on the seventh floor. And then the part, you're going down like six stories. I think, he, I'm pretty sure he did. Like, I'm pretty sure that's what I read is that he did die immediately. Yeah. That's the better option than sitting there suffering until you die. Yeah. Yeah, I think at that point he probably took a header. Also, he was fucked up, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was full of coke and all this alcohol and everything. Your body's not functioning. Oh, I regret. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. First question I wanted to ask you, though. You described a little bit about the church 
of the process church of the final judgment and how they were, or I'm sorry, not them directly. They no longer exist, but some affiliate of theirs and they are based, they had a, a, a branch in New Orleans, if I'm not mistaken, but how some affiliate of theirs was somehow involved. Yeah. The whole story with Margaret Sanchez, Addie had this really good friend whose name was Margaret Sanchez. A few years after Addie's murder, I think it was around 2012. And again, I think it was ABC. They have a series called Final Witness. Each episode was featuring a different murder story. And one episode was focused on Zach and Addie. Addie had this really good friend whose name was Margaret Sanchez, who bartended with her at Hogs Bar and knew both Zach and Addie. And in this documentary, Final Witness, which you can see, it's on Vimeo. You can Google it right now. Margaret Sanchez is one of the main people talking about Zach and Addie throughout this whole thing. And then at the very end, she's doing these interview questions. And the question is probably something, what was going through Zach's mind or what would he have been thinking? And her answer was very specific. It was, oh, well, I would just be thinking, what am I going to do with this body? That's your first thought is, how am I going to fix this or get rid of this body? I know, which seems really sus on its own, but then... A few months later, Margaret Sanchez and her boyfriend pick up this stripper. They go out with this stripper that they knew from a strip club on Bourbon Street and then bring her back to the hotel room. And then they stab her in the bathtub and throw her body in the Gulf of Mexico, where it washes up on the, the shore of Mississippi a few months later. But Addie's best friend was involved in this other very brutal murder. Literally the exact same MO, exact same modus operandi all the way up to the disposal of the body. They literally did the same type of dismemberment, same type of, it wasn't as random as picking up somebody on Bourbon Street, but still it's... You know what they say, Matt? Birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> Sorry, Maddie, but I just had to say, that sticks out to me. It's like, what the fuck? No, absolutely. Everything that I've read and seen is that like, there's no evidence linking the two murders, even though it is wild that... Addie was brutally murdered, and then one of her best friends fatally stabbed someone. Okay, wait, I want to get this right, too, because it wasn't a hotel room. It was a home in Kenner, which is a suburb of New Orleans. And so, yeah, she was sentenced to 40 years in prison. She and her boyfriend, Margaret Sanchez and her boyfriend, whose name was Terry, are in jail for 40 years for murdering this woman. I've read different things. I've heard that it's because they were part of a... New Orleans branch of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which is part of the Son of Sam documentary on Netflix. And then I read that they potentially really believed in the, because this was 2012, it was the Mayan end of the world was supposed to be happening. Mayans are known for human sacrifice, but somehow connected again, don't quote me on this 100%, but yeah, it's, it's crazy that her best friend was involved in this other very brutal murder as well. Yeah, that that's honestly, it's too strange to be coincidental to me dismemberment is not something that people do very often even if you are disposing of a body that's an extreme form of overkill where you're like why and zach of course took it to another level where he hooked her or attempted although i believe i read that there was no evidence of cannibalism which is strange to me might have been just to burn the body yeah that's that's what it was but yeah i don't know how he was playing doing that on a kitchen stove but okay but to your point matt i feel like that's not your go-to i had to dispose of a body what am i going to do with it 
shopping yeah. up in bids. Exactly, Joyce. That's what I'm thinking. You don't hear too often of cases where somebody's dismembered completely and chopped to bits. It just doesn't happen. I mean, Zach, it seems he really did that to try to, more to try to cleanly, I don't know how else to say that, like cleanly dispose of her body than anything else. And especially with Margaret Sanchez saying what she did in the documentary about wondering what to do with the body. It's not crazy to think that she would have gotten that idea, I suppose, from what happened to Addie as well. You would imagine that. Oh, my best friend was dismembered. Sounds like a great thing for me to do. This random stripper we have got for. <laughs> Very strange. I have a question for you, Maddie, that's not necessarily related to this case. What is your training like to be a tour guide especially you're not just showing you're basically in marks around the city do you get to choose the stories you tell how does that work can you talk about that yeah yeah every tour guide has to take this test with the city that every tour guide no matter what type of tour you do and it's a lot just on the general overview of the city and the important people and it goes into some of the architecture and the landscape and everything then in terms of doing the job every day, every company is different. Some places have different scripts and everything. The company that I work for, I love because there's a couple places. They want everyone to go to Lafitte's. They want everyone to go to the Lollary Mansion. But we have so much freedom in what we can talk about and where we can go. Initially, I followed a couple of people around for like a few weeks and recorded them and said my own version of what they said. But then over time, you just gain knowledge and maybe emphasize different details that as I learn more. The place where I work gives a lot of freedom in that respect and what we can do, which is really nice. And then there's people that just do their own random one-off private tours here and there if they want to. Love learning more and getting everything up to date. It makes everything better the next time. The more you read, the more detail you pick up. And that's why it's so interesting. That's why I love doing this podcast, because even cases that I had thought I knew very well, we'll go back and read more, talk more in depth about some of the details, read interviews with cops or witnesses or victims or even the killers or perpetrators themselves. And I think it's so interesting. I didn't get a chance to read Zach's entire note until you had posted it. And I said, that to me is insane that it reminds me of something you'd almost see in a movie script where the killer leaves behind a note and you have to track down. He was pretty literal about it. He gave him an address. It was like, go find her. But it reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Seven, where you have to follow a trail of clues to see this gruesome ending for this person. It's horrible, but it's... Oh, holy shit. Truly, this is a very sad and fascinating case, though. And it's it's full of mystery. And like Matt was saying, I think that's the best part about podcasts in general is that I'm always hearing different perspectives and different bits of information that I may not have considered in my original understanding of the case. And I think that's what's really cool about being able to bring this story. And I know a question here by Wensory just to see what people thought. One of his questions was, what did Iraq, Katrina, and Trump have on the outcome here? And more specifically, in the brutality of the murder and the graphic nature of sex, do we think this was a vet suffering from PTSD? Do we think drugs, a picture? 
do you think he just had this rage within him and was able to let it out? I don't know for a fact because I'm not in the military, but I would imagine part of the training in the military is to desensitize you to death, right? Because it's something you're expected to be able to deal with. Thank you, Lise, for asking that. I appreciate it. Because I was thinking about this as as Maddie's going through the details of both their lives. It's a literal firestorm for both of them. They both experienced either sexual trauma or literal life trauma, watching people be killed, people you know be killed, seeing a child die that you had formed a relationship with, having kids at such a young age. For Christ's sake, that would fuck me up right now. I can only imagine, but... I, I definitely want to talk about that and hear everybody's opinions. I can start. I feel like they were both very vulnerable people based on Zach's experiences in the war and all of the trauma and I don't want to say baggage in a negative term, but all of the life experience and stuff that Addie brought into it. I think they were definitely both vulnerable plus alcohol and drugs don't ever really do much to better somebody in a vulnerable situation. I think, unfortunately, it was a combination that really was the straw that broke the camel's back, but they weren't happy-go-lucky having perfect lives and all that stuff from the jump. Great point, Jules. Totally agree. Especially about adding in drugs and alcohol to already volatile psyche. When people have experienced trauma like that, I think, like Lee said, until you actually experience it, I'm not military. I don't know what it's like to go to war. I only know what I've heard, read, seen people who have experienced it told me. And I, I've never been assaulted, never been attempted at being assaulted. It's one of those things where, again, you don't know what it's like until you experience it. So I can't speak on it. But I can only imagine that these two people, especially with, I love that you use the word survivalism, Maddie, and describing it when you're down to your last and all we have is just the ability to survive. People will turn this crazy resources, primal thoughts and feelings. And I think that doesn't necessarily go away, especially in the aftermath of everything that they all experienced. People who stayed behind, people who were in Katrina's rows of it. It definitely seems to me like that must have been just a, a tumultuous environment to be in. Added, these two people have serious psychological issues. Could not have been a good outcome, fortunately. Absolutely. It was like the perfect storm of terrible things to happen. No pun intended. Zach was literally at the center of two of the biggest disasters of our generation, one of them being the war in Iraq, and then the second being almost immediately after Hurricane Katrina. First of all, that with maybe him not dealing with all the shit that's happened to him, and then having all this being saddled with all this responsibility, just everything that happened with Hurricane Katrina. In the book, I'm remembering one part where they said that when they would walk to the grocery store to loot for stuff, they would see the same dead body that was curled up in a shopping cart that was sitting there. There's all these things that you can't even imagine all the things that they've seen in combination and then zach has his ptsd Addie has a history of abuse and is just lashing out at everybody you know and it is interesting that it culminates in this one little moment that's like i wanted nothing happens in a vacuum everything's a ripple effect but then it all leads to this one 
moment that's horrifying. Zach had probably seen so many graphic things at a young age. I feel like your baseline of reality has to shift once you've seen all those horrifying things. That's a great point. I think that us as like your average civilians who are not in war and hopefully don't have that kind of traumatic upbringing, I think these things are like unfathomable to us, right? We only understand this stuff as far as the true crime sphere goes, right? We, we research, we listen, we watch. but to grow up in such an environment filled with absolute chaos and destruction and whatever else, it, it may be more normalized. And I do think, you know, Zach was suffering from something. It was exacerbated by drugs. Cause I don't know if I believe he would have died by suicide after killing Addie had he not also been suffering himself or had some sort of like come to Jesus moment where it was like, Oh shit. Like, I've done something pretty terrible, even though he said in his little confession, like what scared him most, and this could be part of that. What scared him most is how much he didn't care. And, and maybe when you get to that point, you feel so subhuman. How can you move on from that? It's like when they say if a rabid dog or a dog bites you and draws blood, like, or, or like whatever, they like eat your flesh or whatever they say, you have to put the dog down because then the dog has like tasted flesh. Maybe he was thinking, oh shit, I tasted this and I didn't hate it. And now I'm afraid of like what I could do. Because if I could do this to someone who I loved, what could I do to a total stranger if it didn't bother me and it was so easily done? Something to think about. That's crazy. That's a great point because he, to me, it shows that he went through part of his whole end game process here where he i can't relate to somebody like that the only way i can do it is where was i at when i was his age he was 20 years old right i'm thinking about it as like i was on penn state's campus in state college going to class going to parties still learning figuring myself out this kid was into crete figuring himself out as he's figuring out how to move for cover and avoid IEDs. And I'm making friends. I'm learning how to not only go to class, but cook, clean, go out, maintain a lifestyle. He's making friends with locals and trying to develop relationships and not to get himself killed. As he's going about that, people around him are dying. Death must have been second nature to this guy. And I, I think, yeah, the way you described Eddie, I wanted her to shut the fuck up, so I strangled her. Most of us would have just said, shut the fuck up. Or, or left. But death was second nature to him. Him killing somebody at that point was probably like, you know what? And at least I agree. He probably went through some process before he killed himself. He said, I'm going to spend all my money. I'm going to go out and party. I'm going to get all fucked up. Then he went, he got to that point where he was like, what? I'm disgusted with myself. There's no way I can bear to live any longer. He got all coked out, drank a bunch, spent all his money, went to the rooftop and said, fuck it. No, absolutely. I don't know how to talk about this without sounding like it's victim blaming or I'm saying Addie is at fault in some way. I don't mean it like that, but I do think something about particular combination of the two of them and the relationship that they had 
set each other off. It, we all know like your classic toxic relationship where you're fighting, but you're also like, I love you. It's like this up and down thing. Oil and water. They just did. They had that love for one another, but they, they were, they were two broken souls who found each other, but it just obviously went haywire. And what she did was a bitch move. We got to call that out. Not to victim. She didn't deserve to die, but she got him to sign, to pay for the, the apartment, went behind his back, tried to get him kicked out of the apartment so she could live there by herself. That's bitchy. Again, not to victim blame her and not to say that she deserved to die because of that, but that's rude. I could understand him being angry. It just didn't seem like he had the tools to cope right. properly with the anger. I think you're exactly right. I think would make anyone mad, make anyone angry again that's not a reason to say okay that's okay to kill so you know the, to act violently or do anything like that but it's just the combination of the fact that he had all, the, all this untreated ptsd and traumatizing things that had happened to him and i'm thinking about i keep going back in my mind too about it's not just like okay he came home from this war that he was fighting and went straight to a place where he could feel safe and recovered and everything else he went straight back to his life where he didn't know how he was going to take care of these two kids and he was fighting with his wife and just all these problems again that for me now would be I'm sure terrible but when I was 20 20 or 21 yeah would not not have been prepared for so it's just the combination of both of them as well something that comes back to me too with this is the word betrayal right like Jules was saying and Maddie you said too she did something that was shitty and this man had a whole bunch of really deep-rooted betrayal in his life, right? He befriended that little boy. The little boy's whole family got blown up. You know, his wife and his kid, Katrina happened and took all that from him. And so maybe it was just, he just had so much betrayal that when she betrayed his trust and and was ready and willing to just throw him away, he freaked out. He, He reacted in the only way maybe that his brain is wired to do. And that was just, He'll honestly kind of kill her before she kills me, even though she wasn't seemingly going to kill him. But maybe that was the mindset, like kill or be killed. She's trying to put me out on the street. I'm going to have nothing again. Everything I love is being taken away from me. And alongside the PTSD, maybe he really just went haywire with that idea. Zach was a really big dude. Zach was almost 6'10". And Addie was barely above five feet, a small, skinny person. I've met people who were like six, seven, six, eight. I have not met a person who is six, ten. I don't think. I don't know. But that's just, he's just a very, very big person with this petite person. He was six foot ten. That is yes. fucking, you, I don't know, buddy is six, ten, but he played college basketball. That's, I hope at six, ten, he was doing something with it athletically, but wow. That's a big dude indeed. Jesus. They must have looked the odd couple walking the street. He's like towering over her. I would guess on some of those photos where they're standing next to each other that she's standing on something because everything that I read said that he was. He definitely had a unique, shall we say, relationship between the two of them. And it sounds like she was a bit of a fire plug as well. Obviously, she did something that's a little bit shitty, we can admit. Not a little bit, a lot of bit shitty, we can all admit. Um, and again, I think Jules said it appropriately. That's not to say she deserves to die. That 
say that she did something shitty and that would upset anyone. Best way to put it is just that this was a tragic situation waiting to happen between two very traumatized, fucked up people in a very crazy wild west type environment that has rarely existed in this country where there's just total anarchy and people are living for themselves, living in the streets and anything can happen. And amidst that environment, lose their grip. That's all I got. Unless you guys have any other details on that. First of all, I want to say thank you so much to Maddie for coming on. This was awesome. To say one thing in Addie's defense too, is that Zach was cheating on her. That was the thing that she went to her landlord saying, that's the perfect storm of all these things happening wrong. It's hard because you're like, Zach was discovering his sexuality and having a relationship with this guy. But you can only assume that Addie was really, really hurt by what Zach had done too. It just adds to the whole thing. But I totally agree with what you said. Definitely a gruesome and complicated story. And like, again, Maddie, I think your insight is super important and super I don't know if exciting is the right word because like obviously crime's like not super exciting, but it's so awesome to have someone with such knowledge about a case come on and give that perspective. It's always super nice to have that. And honestly, you should come back any and every case you want. I'm sure New Orleans has a lot to offer from over there, but just real quick, shout out where you work and where how people can find you. So if they are visiting New Orleans, they can have you as their tour guide and how that process works. Yeah, the company that I work for is called New Orleans Ghost Adventure Tours. If you Google New Orleans Ghost Adventure Tours, call the number that's on Google. You can book a tour and you can request to have me as your tour guide. Try to find out when I'm working. The reservation people will be able to figure it out. Or they'll put a note for you if you're booking ahead. You can also... My Instagram is private, but you can send me a message at at Maddie Temps on Instagram, M-A-D-D-I-E-T-E-M-P-S. If you're trying to book a tour and I can help you book one that way too. So, And guys, you got to go check it out. It's where it sounds like so much fun. Matt hasn't shut up about it and I love it. And now we have Maddie on the show, which is another member of the iFrag family. Yes. Thank you much maddie we truly appreciate it and i appreciate the tour and for everything that you offered to us down there it was worth it everybody first of all new orleans is one of the coolest cities on the planet that i've experienced everybody should make it a point to get down there and definitely definitely book a ghost pub tour it's awesome worth it you see so much and so and you get a walking tour of the french quarter which is really worth it very affordable very informative and as you can tell, Maddie crushes it. Everybody check it out, please. Thank you. That's so nice. And I just want to say, too, I do all of the French Quarter tours, the pub crawl, the ghost tour, the call it vampire voodoo tour, but it's a combination of everything. If you want to do any of those. And I had a really good time with you guys. I think I was really nervous when we started out, but I really appreciate you inviting me. It was really nice meeting you, Matt, and all your friends when you were down there and hanging out. I hope you guys had a good time. And yeah, thanks for inviting me to do this. I would definitely do it again. We'd love to have you. Please come back on any any episode you want to. Hey, I'd love to talk about Madame Lollerie. Lollerie, yeah, because there's more where that came from. There's more murder stories too, for sure. Yeah, and guys, remember check out this 
all the tours that she offers in New Orleans. We'll definitely post like links to everything in our show notes. So if you didn't memorize the links from us telling you them, they'll be in our show notes. So make sure you go check that out because like Matt said and like Maddie has said, Jules, I don't know if you've been there, but if you haven't, I'm sure you would say New Orleans is unreal. I always tell people it's like going to Europe, but like in the States. <laughs> it's like rules don't exist. It's a very strange like environment, but it's so much fun. And I think everybody should get there. So thank you so much again. Remember everybody, rate, review, subscribe. Go check out Maddie's tours, especially the ghost tour and the vampire tour because those ones sound badass. But also, who doesn't love a pub crawl tour? That one would be fun too. So <laughs> check them all out, everybody. And yeah. I just want to say thank you. This is really fun. You guys are really nice and really fun to talk to. You're the best. Well, on that note, while it's all, all still positive reviews over here, uh, we're going to call that quit. So I'm going to stop it right now. Goodbye, everybody. Cheerio, everyone. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.